Thank you for downloading this podcast from Lafayette Community Church. We hope this message inspires you to know and live the life you were designed for, because we exist to help people just like you discover life in Christ. So today we're beginning what we traditionally call this, the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, before I get into it, I want to remind you of where we've been. So we've covered the first section of Samuel, that is what we call 1 Samuel. And there's a key verse in there that lets us know everything we need to know about the context of this document. The verse shows up in chapter 13. I've shown it to you almost every Sunday we've been in this series. And it says this, Samuel is speaking to a guy named Saul who is king at the time. And he says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Samuel was looking at Saul and he said to Saul, you're done. God is done with you because you haven't been a man following God. And so God is pursuing someone else. God is after someone who is after him. God is after someone who is pursuing him. That's why we're calling this series The Pursuit because it's really a a story of God pursuing someone who would pursue him back. God wants you to be a person who is after him. That means you're a person who takes after him. And a person who is after him, meaning you're pursuing him. And it tells us there in that one verse that God was looking for someone. But then the rest of the book lets us know who it is. It's a man named David. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel, we now get to see David become the primary character of the story. The story used to be about Samuel, and then it was about a guy named Saul, and then it was about the Saul-David conflict, and now it's about David as the primary character of the story. That's what 2 Samuel begins with, and it's one of the reasons why they divided the single book into those two segments, because the second segment really is all about David, and it was an easy dividing point. But before we go any deeper, I want to ask you a question. Today's discussion question was what kind of bear is best, and the answer we were looking for, of course, is gummy, um, or, or perhaps cinnamon. That's another option that I would take. But um, the, the idea behind that question was really about the things that scare us, the things that are our opponents, the things that are our enemies. Because I want to ask you this overarching question a number of times today. The question is, how do you deal with your enemies? In particular, how do you deal with those moments when your enemies fail? That's an interesting question. Now, I've got a couple enemies in my life. I'll mention a few of them. Um, So let's see. Uh, One of the enemies I have in my life is uh, Tom Brady, okay? Uh, Because he's just a jerk. Let's admit this. The guy, he's, he's too handsome He's too talented, he's, he's too rich, he's got too many Super Bowl rings. I, I mean, the guy's, he's my enemy. I mean, I just, I just can't stand the guy. And perhaps you're in the same boat with me. Just yesterday, I saw a commercial on television for Hertz where he was the guy who was now the celebrity endorsement of Hertz, and it was being played in Indiana, for crying out loud, and I just felt dirty all over and I'm thinking to myself, man, I remember the day, you know, Deflate Gate. Do you remember that? 
I, I remember the day when they found out that Tom Brady had intentionally deflated some footballs and there was the hope, the shred of hope that maybe they would strip away his Super Bowl trophy or his Super Bowl opportunity and give it to Peyton Manning because it was in the game versus the Colts when he deflated the football and got his whatever advantage that gives you. I don't really know. But anyway, man, I, just, I was just hoping and praying almost. I didn't actually pray, but hoping that Tom Brady was on the way down because I tell you what, it's so good when your enemy loses. I, I, another one of my enemies, not now, but then a long time ago, uh, was Al Gore. Do you remember Al Gore? He hasn't been in the public eye a whole lot recently, but you know, I didn't like the guy because after all, he didn't invent the internet. My wife did. Ask me about it later. I will tell you the story. But the thing I didn't like about Al Gore before I even met my wife was the fact that here was this guy and he was obviously evil because I had been raised to understand that all Republicans were good and all Democrats were evil. And so as a result, when Al Gore was running for president, I thought to myself, how in the world could God let such an evil person become president? And I was, you know, in, I was young, okay? But I was like, how in the world could that happen? And then when the whole thing in Florida went down and it was the hanging chads and then finally the Supreme Court stepped in and they're like, we're just going to declare George Bush the winner. I was in the back just going, yeah, man, I love it when my enemy fails. I love it. And then later on, I began to kind of respect Al Gore um, for a number of different things. And I, I don't really hate him as much anymore. I don't really consider him my enemy. But, but nonetheless, I imagine you have had enemies in your life. Probably my, my biggest enemy was Woodcrest Christian School. And not just the school. I'm talking about a dude at Woodcrest Christian School. I went to Apple Valley Christian School and we played basketball against Woodcrest Christian School. Maybe it was Christian Academy. I don't know. They thought they were all good and cool and everything. And so they might have chosen the word Academy. They were just that kind of people to do that. But anyway, I did not like that school at all. They had almost the same exact school colors as we did. And so that was also irritating. But there was this one guy who was six foot 30. And, and I'm... And I'm like 5'10", okay? Then that's what the newspaper said I was. So if any of you claim that I'm not actually 5'10", we're just going to go with the newspaper said when I was in high school, okay? I'm like 5'10", and this dude was super tall. He was, he was tall enough that I'm certain he could have dunked if he wanted to and ever got an opportunity in the game, but they outlawed that in our league for before games. You couldn't intimidate the other team with dunks or anything like that, but I think this guy could do it. Anyway... It's like junior year, and we're playing this team, and he is just scoring up a storm against us. And my coach says to me, Jeff, I want you to take him. And see, here's the thing. I was the scrappiest, fastest person on the court, even though I was kind of short. And so they put me on this guy because of two things. Number one, I was fast enough that I could prevent him from getting the ball. And number two, I was annoying enough that I could get in his head. 
And uh, so I'm guarding this guy, and his, his numbers go down. He is not playing well at all anymore. And finally, I get this opportunity. Someone sends a Passover in this guy's direction. I wish I remembered his name. I'd look him up on Facebook just so I could be like, hey, remember that game? Anyway, so someone, someone passed the ball, and it was just in the right spot. I jumped out. I stole the ball, and I'm heading down the court okay? I'm driving down the court. No one is around me. I'm clear, free sailing, easy layup. I go up for the layup, and this dude comes flying over my head and smashes the ball against the glass to block my shot, and the crowd goes nuts. They're squealing and screaming because of this amazing play this dude had made, and I'm like, How do I get back at that? You know, you, you just, well, the next year, senior year, we were both playing boys volleyball because, see, our league, our schools were too small to have basketball, but we're playing boys volleyball in the playoffs. And even though he was huge, I could jump high enough to block him. And so a couple times during this, this match, I blocked him. And I mean, like, I'm up there above the net, and he, block, he spikes it, and I just put it right, stuffed it right down next to him. And now we're at the end. It's like near the end of one of the games. And he reels back, and he spikes. But this time, it flies right over my hands with a little swipe just along my fingertips and goes out of bounds. This is a Christian school. We're a Christian school, Okay. And what happens next is burned into my brain because what happens next is he points at me and says, he touched it. And the referee did not see me touch it. And so the referee goes out and he gives us the point. And this dude, the dude who blocked me so heinously on the basketball court is now pointing at me, whining and crying because he's like, he touched it. And then he pulls the Christian card. He looks at me and he says, tell the truth, man. You know you touched it. Tell the truth. And I'm just like, I go back to my team, and I hang out with my team, and we got the point, and we won the game, and we won the match, and we went to the next round of the playoffs, and he did not make it to the next round of the playoffs because he was my enemy, and there was no way I was going to let my enemy get the better of me. It's amazing how if you have an enemy, you become an enemy. Have you noticed this? If you have an enemy, you're willing to sacrifice your integrity, your morality. You're willing to sacrifice all kinds of things to see that other person fail. And when they fail, you're just tempted to be like, oh my goodness, this is the best day ever. That other person is crying. That other person is suffering. That other person is hurting. I'm so glad. Isn't it weird how even just having an enemy does such an amazing thing to us? And so I want to ask you again, how do you respond to enemies? And how do you respond when an enemy fails? All of that intro is to set the stage for what we're about to see David do in this passage. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, After the death of Saul... 
David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Now, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we did the story of David and Saul, this first verse gives us a quick little summary. Here's how it goes. David was hiding among the Philistines. The Philistines attacked Israel. Then the story splits off. When the Philistines attack Israel, David is not allowed to join them in attacking Israel because, after all, he wouldn't attack Israel anyway. He would, he would have you know, stabbed him in the back or something. But so they kick him out of the army. And so he goes in another direction, and he discovers that all of his family members, all of his um, men, his army that he's got around him, they go back to a town called Ziklag and find that everybody has been, they find that everybody has been stolen. Everybody has been kidnapped. The whole area has just been ransacked in Ziklag. And so then David takes his men and they attack the Amalekites who attacked Ziklag. They destroy the Amalekites and then they come back to Ziklag and set up camp. That's the David story. Meanwhile, there's the Saul story. The Philistines are attacking Israel. Saul fights against the Philistines and they all lose. They just get, man after man is getting killed until finally Saul gets wounded and he takes his own life. Saul kills himself on this mountain so that the Philistines can't get to him. And that's how the previous book ends. David having victory against the Amalekites and now staying at Ziklag and Saul losing against the Philistines and he's dead. Verse 1 was just a summary of what we had already seen. Now let's go to verse 2. It says, On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Well, what happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Wait. Okay, so we need to pause there for just, uh, just a smidgen. Because we just read in verse 1 that David had killed all the Amalekites. He had just had victory against the Amalekites. To give you a little bit more detail about that, to remind you of something that's happened before, remember way back in the book of the Judges, God said, because you didn't push all the people out of the land of Canaan, I am no longer going to give you freedom from the people in the land of Canaan. God says, I'm going to let all the other people in the land of Canaan live happily next to you, and you're going to have to stay faithful to me in the midst of this um, multicultural society. That's what God said back in the book of Judges. He said, I'm no longer going to push them out. You have to live with them. But he said, except for the Amalekites. Because of some specific reasons from the past, God had wanted the Amalekites to be completely wiped out and judged. Not because the Israelites were great and the Amalekites were bad. It was because God was doing a work of judgment and he called upon the Israelites to be his instrument for that moment. The Amalekites and only the Amalekites were the group of people that God, for his own reasons, decided needed to be wiped out. And so, as a result, throughout 
the next few years of history from the book of Judges onward, the Israelites continued to try to struggle against the Amalekites until we get to Saul. Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites and he failed. And so then David shows up and when his men get attacked from Ziklag and he goes and attacks the attackers, he finds out the attackers are Amalekites and now David can wipe them out. And we are told in the story that all the Amalekites are gone except for 400 who escape. And later on in a book that, you know, First Chronicles, later on, we'll find out that those 400 that escaped got wiped out by another Israelite tribe. And so as a matter of fact, the last time you see the word Amalekite in the Bible is chapter 1 of Second Samuel. This is the last story in the Bible that talks about Amalekites. Because this dude is the last Amalekite. He is the last one. Now this is fascinating. Because we have just been sort of hinted at this story arc. And now King Saul says to the dude, who are you? The dude says Amalekite. And Saul doesn't do anything. But David might. What is David going to do with this last remaining enemy? Well, let's keep reading a little bit farther and see what else is going on. Verse 9. It says, Then he said to me, this is still the Amalekite talking, Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood behind, beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Pause again. That was a lie. Right, we just read a few weeks ago, we just read the last few verses of 1 Samuel. The last few verses of 1 Samuel, I don't know how the author of 1 Samuel knows this story because there weren't any witnesses there to see it who survived. But the author of 1 Samuel knows this story and he recounts it to us that Saul said to his armor bearer, kill me. The armor bearer said, no, I won't kill you. Saul kills himself, and then the armor bearer kills himself. Therefore, there are no witnesses left. Everybody is dead by the time anyone else shows up. And that's like the chapter right before this one. Now, if these are two separate books, you might say, okay, so the guy finished book one, then he waited a few years, and then he kind of forgot how he ended book one, and he's writing book two, and he's got something else. No, this is one book. And so the same guy who wrote the end of 1 Samuel is still writing the beginning of 2 Samuel, and he puts these two stories together to let us know it's a lie. The Amalekite is lying. But David doesn't know that. David doesn't know what's going on with the Amalekite. And now we get to this question. David has just learned that this guy has killed Saul and has brought Saul's crown to him. What would you do in that moment? How would you respond when your enemy has fallen? You see, for a long time, Saul has been chasing David. For a long time, Saul has been trying to kill David. David was anointed to be the king, but now Saul is trying to kill him. And finally, Saul is dead. 
put yourself in David's shoes. You now just have heard that Saul is dead. The guy who's trying to kill you. Your enemy is dead. How would you feel? On top of that, this guy who's just showing up is bringing to you his crown. The crown was supposed to be yours for a long time. You were anointed to be king way long ago. Way around the time you killed Goliath as a teenager. You've been moving through your life in a long ways away from being king. And now finally you find that the previous king who was your enemy is dead. And now the crown is yours. And this Amalekite guy has just brought it to you. Now certainly we know the motivation of the Amalekite guy. He's like, I'm going to try to get in good with this new king. Everybody knows David's going to be the next king, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to be his loyal guy. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be like, hey, I took care of Saul for you. Reward me. Hey, I brought you the crown. Reward me. How would you respond when you find that your enemy has fallen? I imagine David could rejoice. <sighs> Finally, that loser's gone. I imagine David could feel really excited about this new guy who's so faithful. But how does David actually respond? Pick it up in verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. See, what David does is so fascinating We understand why he would mourn for Jonathan. Jonathan and David had this covenant love relationship with each other. They were best friends. We understand why he would have mourned for Jonathan. We understand why David would mourn for the army of Israel who lost so many soldiers. That makes sense too. We understand why David would mourn for the cities that have now been ransacked by the Philistines. We understand why David would mourn for all these things. But we don't understand on a gut level why David would mourn for Saul. And what you and I need to see is that for David, Saul was in that mix. For David, Saul was in that mix. Saul was just just as much a member of Israel as anyone else. You see, here's the thing. For David, Saul wasn't a guy trying to kill him. For David, Saul was his brother. Saul was his compatriot. And here's a lesson I want us to take from this. Godly people don't see brothers as enemies. You could put sister in there too, family member. Godly people don't see family members as enemies. That's a hard thing to do. Don't get me wrong. It was obvious that Saul was trying to kill David. And when someone is trying to kill you, does that not feel like they're your enemy? Yeah, it feels like they're your enemy, but David's not going to let that happen. He's going to reject that whole idea. And he's going to say, no, Saul is dead. It's not that my enemy is dead. It's that my brother is dead. My fellow Israelite, my king is dead. Okay, so now what's he going to do about this Amalekite guy who came and reported this lie about killing Saul? What is David going to do there? Let's take a look at that one. Pick it up in verse 13. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand 
to destroy the Lord's anointed. Now, this is really interesting because this Amalekite guy just says he's an Amalekite. And you think David should say, oh, you're an Amalekite, are you? Here's my sword. But he doesn't. What he actually says is, who do you think you are to destroy the Lord's anointed? Verse 15. Then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. This is key. David isn't killing this man because he's the last lingering Amalekite. David is killing this man because he has killed King Saul. Now he hasn't, but David believes this lie. David believes this guy's lie that he killed Saul. And David is like, no one takes the life of of King Saul. This again is proof that David doesn't see Saul as his enemy, but it's also proof of something else. Godly people don't just give everybody a pass. Godly people still take care of justice. Godly people don't shy away from justice. This is a really interesting thing that's going on here. On the one hand, David refuses to consider Saul an enemy. On the other hand, he refuses to let this Amalekite persist in his injustice. This Amalekite killed the king. And David says he deserves to die. Now, he didn't kill the king, but David believed it. Okay, so what happens in the rest of this story is really kind of fascinating. Because in the next few verses, we are going to read a psalm that David does not write about God. David writes a lot of psalms about God. They're in the book of Psalms. But here, in in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David writes a psalm that is about King Saul and his son Jonathan. And I'll walk you through it. Verse 17, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son, Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. A lament of the bow. The way I'm viewing that is uh, a bow that is pulled across a guitar-type instrument. Or maybe it's the bow that would be used in battle. And this is a lament about battle times. Not exactly sure. And we don't know what the book of Jashar is, but this is also copied over in there. Verse 19. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Ever heard that phrase before? How the mighty have fallen? That's from the Bible. And it's a lament about a guy who is trying to kill the author of the song. How the mighty have fallen is not a rejoicing statement about how great it is to see the strong succumb. It's exactly the opposite. How the mighty have fallen is a statement from a godly person mourning the fact that someone else has passed. How the mighty have fallen is not about Saul's death. It's about how mighty he had been. David viewing him as a warrior. It says, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, 
Let the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. That just means this, this is the kind of news that should never be given to our real enemies. This is the kind of news that is not worth celebrating. Don't let anyone who hates us find out about this. Because this is sad news. This is bad times. Saul is dead and we are not happy. Don't let our neighbors hear this story because they might rejoice in our misfortune. And believe me, David would say, it is misfortune. Verse 21, mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. This is again so fascinating for me. It's it's obvious that David would sing the praises of Jonathan, this guy that he loved, this guy he cared for, his best friend. But the fact that David would call Saul such a mighty warrior, the fact that David would say Saul was this incredible thing, he was swift, he was brave, he was courageous, the fact that David would refer to Saul with such glowing words is a real challenge to me. How do you respond when your enemy has fallen? Man, I so much want to just rejoice in that moment. Thank goodness they're gone. Thank goodness they're dead. Thank goodness I don't have to worry about that situation anymore. I'm just so glad they have left. Because here's the thing, when we're facing an enemy, all that we want is just to eliminate the conflict. We just want to get done with that conflict. We want to reject the enemy. We want to eliminate the enemy. And David here is looking at this guy who was his enemy from our perspective. He says, oh no, that guy was a great warrior. We should mourn his loss. And then David says, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with armaments of gold. All you people, don't rejoice in this guy's death. He was valiant. He was great. Remember him with honor. Man, I read the stories of Saul, and I, I mean, if you were here through the messages of 1 Samuel, you heard me time and time again repeatedly berate Saul, repeatedly talk about how bad this guy was, the choices that he made, how terrible they were, how he is not the person you want to follow or emulate or be like in any way. Over and over again, that's how I portrayed him, but that's not how David portrays him. David portrays him as this heroic figure who should be celebrated. And so I ask you again, how do you respond when your enemy has fallen? Have you had that moment on Facebook where you're scrolling through, or maybe for you it's Instagram, or maybe for you it's Snapchat or Twitter or something, where you're scrolling through just looking for misfortune to fall upon someone that you don't like? Have you been in that moment before where there's a person that you just went back onto Facebook to find out if they've had their comeuppance yet? I know I've been there. I know I've experienced that. But that's not how David operates. Let's finish up this lament and see what happens at the end. Verse 25. David says, How the mighty have fallen in battle. 
Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. And by the way, I'll make the same comment about this that I made before. This has nothing to do with any sort of like sexual relationship. David specifically says that the love he had with Jonathan was better than any love with a woman. He was saying that the love they had transcended physicality, transcended anything like that. It was a, it was a bond that we can only use the word love to describe, but a bond that love is too small of a word to describe. And then verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. The way this story ends reminds us that even though David never saw him as an enemy, and even though David still was a person of justice, there's also this other lesson about godly people, and it's that godly people don't ever shy away from lament. Godly people don't shy away from lament. Now, this is really important, I think, because we live in a society that is uncomfortable with sadness. There was a time in the past when the majority of Shakespeare's plays were called tragedies because everyone died at the end. And there was a sense of catharsis when you find out that all the other people died and you get to go home. There's, that's the way that, that world operated. And then, lo and behold, in our world today, movies don't make any money unless they're funny and they have a happy ending because none of us are okay with sadness. We only want to end on the up note, end on the high note, end in the happy place. And David here is like, hang on a second. Something bad has happened. The guy who was trying to kill me is now dead, and we should all cry a little bit about it. It's so weird. But it's a lesson I think we need to learn. And it's a lesson that comes from the New Testament in one of the most uncomfortable passages that we can find. It's a lesson that we see in the life of David, but it doesn't get unpacked in any sort of like lesson or doctrine form until you make it through the lens of Jesus. And by the time we get to the New Testament, there is a principle that is taught to us. And it goes like this. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. Here's the fascinating thing. I am so eager to see my enemies fail that when they do, I rejoice. They're suffering, but I'm rejoicing. And I am so eager to avoid suffering that even when someone I love is suffering, I will find ways to keep myself away from it. And there's this idea in the New Testament that will become abundantly clear in just another moment that basically says, no, that's not the way God designed this world to work. God designed us to be people who suffer with those who suffer. Now, there's the passage in Leviticus that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that gets us close to it. Jesus then expands upon it and calls it the second greatest commandment ever and that if you follow those commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, then everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in your life. But Paul makes it explicit in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, Bless those who, bless you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's this idea that is abundantly clear in the New Testament that we struggle with our whole lives. And it is this. Everyone is my brother or sister. See, there was a point in time when God said there's a people called Israel and then there's the outsiders. And then there was another point in time when God said there's a people called Israel and there's the people who live near you who are your neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then there was a period of time when Jesus said, oh, let me tell you who your neighbor is. You know that Samaritan that you hate? They're more neighborly to you than you are to them. Love the cultural different person as yourself. And by the time we get to Paul, he says, live at peace with everyone. There's a mindset that you and I have been called to adopt as Christians. And it is the mindset that everyone around me is my brother or sister. Some of them know Jesus and they're part of my Christian family. Some of them don't don't know Jesus and they might become part of my Christian family. But everyone is part of my earthly family. And God wants me to live and move among them in such a way that these are the people that I rejoice with when they rejoice. And I lament with when they lament. And if one of us is suffering, all of us are suffering. And if we are rejoicing together, great. But if one of us is suffering, we're all suffering. And God would call us to something bigger and fuller. And I'll describe it this way. As Christians, we need to be the people who are godly like David and say, I reject the whole idea of enemies. It no longer exists. This whole idea that there are people who are my enemies No more for me. I reject that concept completely. If David can absolutely cry when Saul, the man who tried to kill him, is dead, then you and I don't need to view the people in our lives as enemies either. That means you're going to have to treat people like Tom Brady, like your brother. That means you're going to have to treat people who like Tom Brady like that person is your brother or sister. That means you're going to have to be honest about the ways you've failed someone else and tried to get advantage of them, and you're going to have to give them the benefit of the doubt when it feels like they've tried to take advantage of you. That means enemies no longer exist. That means we no longer live in a world where it's us versus them. That means we no longer live in a place where now there are me against them. We don't live there anymore. Enemies are gone. Godly people don't have enemies. Now, there might be people who oppose you, but that's on them. 
you, like Paul says, rejoice when they rejoice and mourn when they mourn and you live at peace with them and they are not your enemy even if they think you are theirs. And so I'm going to leave you with this question. How do you respond to your enemies? Well, if we take the approach David is taking here with regard to Saul, we're going to be the kind of people who reject the whole idea of enemies. And if we can do that, maybe we can step into the place of Jesus, who while hanging on the cross, looks at the people who put him there and said, Father, forgive them. When we come to communion, we are the people who put Jesus there. We are the reason he went to the cross, our sin. And if he is willing to spill his blood and have his body broken for you, then for crying out loud, there are no enemies left. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.